Welcome to A Passion to Serve. My name is Don Kutnicki and I'm the host of the podcast. I've spent the majority of my professional career developing and implementing policies and programs to help break the vicious cycle of poverty that too many people endure. With A Passion to Serve, I bring you stories of individuals from all walks of life who are working towards similar goals and objectives. During our interviews, we discuss employment and training programs, Head Start services, financial literacy instruction, and so much more. And of course, I also speak to the people who are utilizing these programs to help create a better life for themselves and their families. I hope you decide to join me and learn about these amazing people who all have a passion to serve. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 22 of A Passion to Serve. Today I'm speaking with David Maraskin, Food Project Litigation Director with the Public Justice Food Project in Washington, D.C. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about a lawsuit that was recently filed here in Michigan, but I'd like you first to provide some background information about your work with the Public Justice Food Project. Of course. So Public Justice is a national legal advocacy organization that works on a variety of issue areas. And the Food Project focuses specifically on the concentration issues in the animal agriculture industry, the ways in which corporations have gathered power and then manipulated laws to their advantage. And we seek to use litigation in conjunction with targeted media efforts and working with on-the-ground groups to build their capacity and power to seek long-term change in how the agriculture system is structured. We see a lot of companies externalizing their costs onto the public and communities and are trying to get them to actually bear the cost of the ways in which they produce food. Well, I found it really interesting when I started to look up a little bit more about the Public Justice Food Project. I know that whether this is your mission statement, that one of your goals is pretty much what you just said, that you envision a future where food chain results in healthy, empowered communities and sustainable livelihoods along with a just animal agriculture system that's both transparent and accountable to people and not profits. I also know that you were actively engaged in two egg gag cases. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that fits into the overall mission of the Public Justice Food Project? Of course. uh, Transparency, which is what ag-gag is about, is one element of how corporations maintain their power. So we see everything from corporations limiting their liability to manipulating how the public understands what they're doing and understands the consequences of what they're doing. What they're doing. So we try to uh, work across that entire spectrum. The case in Michigan we're going to talk about is more about liability, that companies should be responsible for the harms that they cause, but the other end of that is making sure people are aware of the harms that they cause. And ag-gag laws are laws that suppress information about how agriculture is being produced from reaching the public. It keeps information about animal abuse, worker abuse, uh, environmental contamination from reaching the public. And when that information does reach the public, people press for change. I think we saw this a lot during COVID, for instance, as people became aware of the risk that workers in the food industry were exposed to, they really did press for change. Well, one of the ways companies prevent that change is from keeping the public from learning about that. And so we bring First Amendment challenges to those types of laws. And what we're doing in Michigan is kind of the other end of that. It's saying 
we need to make sure that when not just that the public is aware, but that the companies are actually responsible for taking care of the people and the places in which they operate. And that and that's one of the things we're trying to make sure happens in Michigan. Yeah, that's a nice segue and transition to what's going on here. Both the Public Justice Food Project and the Sugar Law Center, you're representing the Michigan Immigrants' Rights Center in a lawsuit that was filed on November 4th. And as you had mentioned, it has to do with um, undocumented workers having access to worker workers' compensation wages, which they currently do not have. Can you provide a little bit more detail regarding that lawsuit? Of course, and I think it's important to start by talking about what workers' compensation is. So workers' compensation is a system in which workers are forced to accept a state-determined amount of recovery for injuries on the job. So workers, in fact, give up a lot to be part of the system. You cannot go to court and seek recovery for any kind of on-the-job injury if it's covered by workers' compensation. Instead, you have to go through the state-administered system. And therefore, employers really like it because it ensures that they can um, have predictable liability, and they actually buy insurance policies against that liability. And so they make sure that their risk is managed. And therefore, this is a very employer-friendly system. And to make it yet more employer-friendly, and particularly agriculture-friendly in Michigan, what's happened is the state has carved out an exception to workers' compensation if you are, quote-unquote, committing a crime, or excuse me, if you are engaged in the commission of a crime, is the actual language in the statute. And what's peculiar about this, and what I really want to underscore, is it doesn't say you have to have committed a crime. So what Michigan is not doing is saying if you're in jail and you can't work or a court has found you guilty of a crime and that prevents you from working, you can't get workers' compensation. Rather, this is saying if there's some abstract notion that you're doing something illegal, you cannot get workers' compensation. At the same time, Michigan has said that undocumented workers are required to go through the workers' compensation system. That is, they give up all the rights that every other worker gives up and can't go to court. And then Michigan courts have said simply being undocumented in Michigan and working amounts to the commission of a crime, whether or not a court's ever found you guilty. And so it's this incredibly archaic and convoluted system in which Michigan's saying undocumented workers give up your rights if you're injured on the job because we're going to compensate you. Oh, actually, no, we're not going to compensate you simply because of who you are being an undocumented worker, regardless of whether that actually ever keeps you from getting a job and regardless of whether you're injured on the job and actually need compensation. It's this incredibly unfair catch-22 that Michigan has set up through its workers' compensation system that we're challenging. Now, this goes back to a 2003 case, I believe, in the uh, the Michigan Court of Appeals decision in Sanchez versus Ego Ally. How does that case uh, impact and inform the lawsuit that you recently um, processed in Michigan? So that's really the core of the what we believe is the misapplication of the law in Michigan. So until 2003, our understanding is that no one really tried to apply this commission of a crime exception under the statute. And then the Farm Bureau, which is the lobbying group for the biggest agricultural interests across the nation, got this idea that it could get the benefits of undocumented workers' labor 
by having them work in unsafe conditions, but prevent the liability by labeling them as having committed a crime by being undocumented. And so Sanchez was the first case to adopt this view of the world in which simply being undocumented amounts to something that excludes you from workers' compensation compensation without actually, even though you're required to go through the system and you can't sue in court. And the way in which Michigan courts have since applied that is to say that simply you not having working papers in the United States prevents you from ever getting workers' compensation. And in fact, what's happened is because so many courts have applied this notion that insurers now for these companies simply do a social security number check and say, do you have a social security number? And the answer is no, they just deny you compensation. Well, here's the grand secret in all of this. Being undocumented in the United States is not a crime. The, the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that being undocumented in the United States is not a crime because Congress specifically chose not to make it a crime. Hiring undocumented workers in some circumstances can be a crime. But when Congress made U.S. immigration laws and recognized that undocumented workers are easily subject to exploitation, and so them being hired does not amount to them committing a crime because the burden should be on the employer. So essentially what Michigan's done is it's created a crime out of thin air that benefits employers while harming workers who have already given their labor to the employer and worked in unsafe working conditions. Is Michigan an outlier in comparison to other states regarding workers' compensation and how they are administering this and enacting this statute? It's so it's an outlier in two ways. One is that the language committing a crime or commission of a crime rather than having committed a crime is unique. So plenty of other states have laws that say if you're in prison or you've actually been found guilty of a crime that might limit your um, your ability to get compensation. Michigan is unique in having this exception that says if we just determine in the workers' compensation process we think you've done something illegal, but then we can um, we can then deny you compensation even though no criminal court has ever actually judged you to have done something illegal. And that then allows Michigan to take the second unique step of making this crime out of thin air. The Supreme Court, again, the U.S. Supreme Court, that is, has repeatedly said states cannot create crimes for workers working while undocumented because Congress has chosen not to. Essentially, what Michigan courts have done is gone rogue and said that they're going to ignore the Supreme Court statements of what is a crime in this country and make up their own because of this peculiar language in the statute. Well, in some ways, it almost feels like if you go back in time, and in some instances, it can still happen now where we had a situation where employers would hire farm workers, and then once the work was close to being finished, they would call in law enforcement and have them picked up, wouldn't have to pay wages. And this, in a different way, almost feels somewhat similar, which I think is a real um, not a good look for us here in Michigan and not a good look for agriculture in general. Um, when I spoke with staff attorney Anna Hill from the Michigan Immigrants Rights Center, she said that this could be a fairly long-term process um, in terms of getting some type of resolution with the lawsuit. What are some of the next steps? Where do you see this moving forward and when? So 
we filed the suit. We, the next step is for the state to respond. Typically, what happens is that the state seeks to dismiss a suit on like this on technical legal grounds. And so we'll have to fight that. And if the state were to prevail in the lower court, we would appeal that. And then eventually we have to reach the merits and the, um, that has to go up probably to the Michigan Supreme Court in some way. Um, so this is going to be a long-term process, but what we hope happens throughout this suit and going back to public justice model of working is that both workers and worker advocates become aware of the way in which Michigan is misapplying the law and that they put pressure on the governor and then the attorney general, both of whom I know have upcoming races, to really think about whether this is a legitimate application of the law. I think your analogy is exactly right. What's happening is that workers are giving their labor in exchange for certain rights and then being denied those rights for no reason. And that, you know, that is an unfair exploitation of their labor. It's also really damaging to Michigan in several ways. Michigan depends upon undocumented workers who not only provide labor to the state, but pay millions, to, I think, believe hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes every year to the state. Michigan's going to deter those workers from coming to the state if it continues to um, deny them access when it depends upon their labor. At the same time, the point of workers' compensation is to ensure work employers create safer environments. And if undocumented workers can be treated as disposable, that means that all workers are less safe in Michigan. And so Michigan is creating the system in which it's deterring labor relies upon. And it's also in deterring tax base relies upon. And then at the same time, exposing all workers to increased risks. And the notion that this is how the state should operate, particularly in this day and age, is really stunning. And our hope is that advocates continue to build political pressure as we're conducting the lawsuit. Well, you know, it would seem to me, and going back to what you initially talked about in the mission of the Public Justice Food Project, that this may be a microcosm of a much larger structural issue that is just epidemic throughout agriculture. Some of the inequities that, unfortunately, that we've allowed to move on or, or continue and endure for quite a long period of time. Um, what else would you want our listeners to know about this case in particular and the work that you're doing in general um, relating and, and assisting people who are finding themselves in difficult straits based on cases such as uh, Sanchez versus Ego Ally? Well, so our two things. One is specific to Michigan, which is our hope is that through this case, we can also empower the private bar to take on more of these cases and be there to help workers in Michigan specifically who need compensation. And so, you know, we really are interested in working with the private bar to ensure that after this case gets resolved, there's not just this precedent lying out there, but a better system for workers in general. And public justice's base is largely trial lawyers. We work with the associations for justice throughout the country. And so we're really interested and excited to engage with anyone who wants to have those conversations about how we leave Michigan's workers' compensation bar more robust and don't just kind of provide some abstract legal victory. We really want to help these workers. And to the broader point that you're making, I think, again, that's exactly right, which is that what you're seeing in Michigan is something that is systemic through our laws and particularly through our agriculture system, which is that it depends on 
immigrants, sometimes undocumented labor. But our legal system is set up to allow the companies to benefit from that and neither the workers nor the communities. And we need to shift that power. But, you know, this is something that we've seen throughout the industry, throughout the industry. So, for instance, meatpacking companies regularly rely on immigrant labor in order to process meat. And they specifically hire different types of immigrants to prevent them from organizing, trying to keep cultural differences in place. And once they do organize, we saw back a couple of years ago, one of the companies actually called an ICE to do a raid to try to prevent those workers from ever actually kind of exercising their power. Laws like Michigan's are there to scare workers and repress them. And we need to begin to kind of take back that power. And you can do that in a variety of different ways. Our lawsuits are one small aspect of this, but we really see it as part of a broader effort to articulate workers' rights and try to make some more balance that's been lost in the kind of expansion of corporate power. So, David, where can people learn more about the Public Justice Food Project? So we have a website, publicjustice.net, um, and you can go there. Um, you certainly can reach out to me. Uh, my email is David, or excuse me, D. Muraskin, M-U-R-A-S-K-I-N, at publicjustice.net. And we also can take intakes through our website, and we'd love to hear how we can help anyone um, in the state or throughout the nation, right? That's one of the great things about being a national nonprofit is that we partner with groups anywhere and everywhere. And so are really interested in learning what's happening on the ground for you and then thinking through how we can best be of service. Well, David, thank you so much for speaking with me this morning. The the case and everything, I, I find the legalities of it, just fascinating, although the overall reason why we're having this conversation is very disheartening that here we are in 2021, and, and these are still some of the things that we see. And unfortunately, history, you know, in some cases, in its worst cases, end up repeating itself. So thank you so much for this information. I look forward to keeping in contact and communication with you as this case moves forward. Thank you for spending some time with me on A Passion to Serve. Okay, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to A Passion to Serve. You can follow A Passion to Serve on Spotify, where you have access to my interviews from seasons one through three, along with recently published episodes. Until next time.